That is my favorite quote of all time. I could die and go to heaven on that moment. Ah. Hi, it's Rob Moore here. Sitting on the sofa in front of the fire, reflecting on 700 episodes of The Disruptive Entrepreneur. So we launched The Disruptive Entrepreneur in 1656, or at least it feels like that. I think it's six years. We're nearly at our six-year anniversary. And we wanted to do something different for the 700th episode. So what we've done is gone through the entire archive and picked out some of our most popular, disruptive, controversial guests and taken some excerpts which we believe are varied and interesting and fit the theme of the disruptive entrepreneur. And then I'm sitting and listening to them and we're playing them to you. And then I'm giving reflections and evaluations and changes on some of our best bits in 700 episodes. So put your slippers on, open a pack of Doritos, pull up your pants a little bit and enjoy the show. Here's an excerpt of an interview with the man who wrote How to Be a Billionaire, Martin Fridson. What does a billionaire know that a millionaire doesn't yet know? Well, I think that knowing that it's possible, I, I think they have a belief in themselves that they can achieve this. You know, it's typical, uh, at least some of the billionaires who said, oh, I never really set out to make a lot of money. I just enjoyed what I was doing. And I just need to put this out there. I actually don't believe when these billionaires say it's not about the money. I never focused on the money. I just focused on producing value and the billions came. I actually don't believe that. And I'm not saying they're lying. I'm just saying that I think to make that kind of money, you have to be good with numbers. You have to be good with management accounts, profit and loss, balance sheets, revenue targets, forecasts. You have to be able to create a margin and then have vast scale on that margin. And that's hard. You know, for example, if you look at a a profit margin of someone like Tesco is 3%. That is a really skinny percent margin. But of course, across hundreds of billions or whatever the revenue is, it's really good money. But you get that slightly wrong and you're over. So I think that most billionaires must have a focus on money. Now, I do get that when people like Warren Buffett say, well, it's maybe a way of keeping score. It's a barometer or when people say it's a target or a goal or a next level to chase. And I do understand that to some people, it's not just all about the money. It could be the drive, the recognition, the value, the contribution. It could be doing something meaningful. It could be the voids that one has in their lives that they're trying to fill and fulfill. I just don't believe it when people say it's never about the money. If it wasn't, give it all away. Well, actually, maybe some of them are, but I've just never believed that. And I'm going to go on a mission to challenge it because I think what you appreciate appreciates. And whilst I agree that money is the result of an exchange of value, of creation, solution, of progress, of innovation, of disruption, money is the result of that. But you can do all that and not make money as well. And you cannot master what you do not measure. And so these billionaires must have 
measured and tracked and chased and targeted money. They must have. Uh, there may be such a case, but I think they were driven by the money, at least as um, a goal, if not necessarily for the enjoyment of the wealth itself, but as an achievement uh, mm. to get to that kind of a level. And uh, most of us don't realize it is actually possible to achieve such a thing. It, it seems so extraordinary, so far beyond the imagination. You know, really understanding that it is possible uh, to achieve that, I think, is the most significant difference. So Martin Fritzen there is talking about billionaires believe the impossible or they can achieve what other people have no perception of believability. I do agree with that. But I definitely think that people limit themselves with what's already been done and not what's yet to be done. And when I see people around me that need proof of something to have happened before they can believe it, that really holds them back. Whereas when I see people who can see the future, who can who can imagine the unimaginable, who can turn the ethereal into the real, the spiritual into the material. They can visualize before they realize these are the people who become billionaires. These are the people that change the world. These are the disruptors and the innovators. And that is a massive lesson. You can't wait till you've got proof. You can't wait until you've got permission. You have to be it and believe it before you see it. You know, really understanding that it is possible uh, to achieve that, I think, is the most significant difference. Mm. Uh, most people don't set out to do that, and I don't think everyone should. Uh, it's not the most balanced life, you might say, there, uh, although uh, some of the billionaires have uh, achieved in other fields and uh, have uh, certainly enjoyed uh, leisure activities. People often talk about wildly wealthy people not having a balanced life, but we all have an unbalanced life. We're all striving for the impossible, which is to have perfect health, perfect wealth, perfect relationships, perfect um, spirituality and, and faith and perfect emotions and perfect career and perfect body. And no one has perfect everything. No one. So when people project onto wildly successful people that they're unbalanced, I think we're all unbalanced. Some people are striving for balance, but the challenge when you're striving for balance in eight areas of your life is you have to put equal focus on eight areas of your life. Whereas wildly successful people, they're often just extremely focused on one or two areas of their life. And really, that's about knowing what you want for your life. I do agree with Martin that being a billionaire or wildly successful isn't for everyone. The cost to become a billionaire is significant. Elon Musk took nearly all of his PayPal profits, hundreds of millions, and risked it all. I've never risked it all. I've always hedged. I've always invested and diversified. And I look at my risk threshold as I'm 42 now and I have children and I have loads of properties and I have loads of stuff and I have loads of stuff to lose. And I realise I probably haven't got the same risk appetite that maybe some disruptors or billionaires or innovators or young hustlers have got. So when none of us are balanced, where do you want to put your time? Where do you want to put your energy? Who do you want to become? Get clear on that. Uh, but you have to be pretty um, focused, mm. <laughs> extremely focused to achieve anything like a billion dollars of net worth. So when you say not always balanced, do you mean there's 
attrition in other areas of their life or just because they've been so single-minded, they've not really done anything else? Well, I, again, there's some variation in that, but to give you an example, Sam Walton's family said that when they went on a family vacation, he would spend most of his time at other stores. This was the founder of the Walmart. Which I There's something so cool about being obsessed about what you love. And imagine going on holiday with Sam Walton and all holiday, he's just off in all the other shops trying to copy and model what they're all doing. And you know, some people don't really respect that obsession, healthy obsession, you know, and sometimes um, the lazy call the inspired obsessed. Let me say that again. Sometimes it's the lazy that call the inspired obsessed. And if you love what you do and do what you love and turn your passion into your profession and your vocation into your vacation, never let anyone tell you that you're too obsessed or you're doing too much or you're working too hard or you haven't got balance. You know intuitively where you want to put your time. And he would go into other stores and uh, copy what they were doing. He was very proud of that he had not uh, originated any idea. Mm -hmm. He just copied from others and uh, did this obsessively and uh, genuinely enjoyed it. I don't think there's any question that the uh, billionaires liked what they were doing, something that might seem onerous or a chore to many of us. And many of us would say, well, uh, I'm making a good living. I'm happy when the workday is over, I can go home and spend the time with my family and or enjoy other pursuits. Uh, and again, it's not that they were uh, completely one dimensional, but no question that what came first was the focus on business, building an enterprise, uh, figuring out how to capitalize on that, expand their wealth more, even after they got to a point where they were uh, quite comfortable. Mm. Um, Martin, who studied so many billionaires, said that uh, all the billionaires that he's researched love what they do. And that doesn't mean it isn't onerous. This is a bit of a, a myth in society. You know, a lot of people just don't know you could actually turn your passion into your profession, your vocation into your vacation. You can love what you do and do what you love. You can do that. You couldn't maybe do that 50 years ago in the industrial age. You know, you were just like on the factory line. Next, 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 next. This is me for 50 years. Not really what I want to do in my life. But now you can. You can turn your vocation into your vacation. You can turn your idea into income. You can turn your reach into revenue. You can turn your content into cash flow. So loving what you do is something that paradoxically you should find something that you love to do that would give you endurance and you'd probably not give up when it got hard. But even in everything that you love, there's things that you hate. Finding the overarching business model that you've got passion and enthusiasm and energy and drive and desire for is vital. And you should ask yourself that every day. People are always asking me, Rob, what's the best business model? The one that you love the most. That's the best business model because you will endure the upsides and downsides, the, you know, the addictions and the depressions, the elations and the anxieties. You will endure the distractions, the lovers and the haters, the critics and the fans. You will endure it all in the ongoing, uh, long-standing pursuit of a vision. And you won't if you just do something that's get-rich-quick or that someone else imposed upon you or that um, you settled for. However... Some people are a bit hippie about this. No, I just want to do what I love. I don't want to do any hard work. I don't want to do any difficult work. I just want to do what I love because I can do what I love. And they don't enjoy challenge. 
and they want it to be too easy. And I actually think the real benchmark and measurement of being in a business model that you love is that you eat the problems for breakfast, as my friend Lauren Ridinger said, and that you face the challenges head on and you do not avoid conflict and difficult situations. Whereas too many people are hippie around the fact they think they can love everything and they're really just avoiding hard work and challenge. Kirk Kerkorian, who uh, made uh, fortunes in uh, the entertainment business uh, uh, and uh, a variety of ventures, uh, got to the point where he had sold a business and uh, was worth $100 million at a time when it would be, it'd be equivalent to a billion nowadays. Um, said, well, what am I going to do now? Just sit around? I, I, so he wanted to make more and he bet the whole thing. He came very close to going bust completely several more times. This is really common. Um, I see Elon Musk, he did that with his PayPal profits. My friend Neville Wright, he sold Kitty Care. Um, 75 million, I think he's worth 100 million plus. And then he's like, well, what do I do now? And a true entrepreneur and a scaled wealth builder loves the game, loves the art, loves the chase, loves the thrill, loves the identity and the value. And so usually when the company is sold or the work is done, they're kind of lost and they don't really have that value. I remember I retired in 2016 after writing my book, Life Leverage, and went and traveled the world for a few months and you know had a midlife crisis of buying loads of sports cars and classic cars and supercars and took my son around the world playing in the world golf championships at a really young age. And I enjoyed it for weeks, not months, weeks. And then I felt unfulfilled of not of value, a, a lack of purpose. Um, and so then starting my podcast, this podcast, The Disruptive Entrepreneur, was born out of that frustration of not contributing and not winning and not challenging yourself. So I think giving yourself that business model, that pursuit that's meaningful and scalable and probably never ultimately achievable. You know, these entrepreneurs that are racing to space right now, they get to space, then they get to another planet, then they inhabit the planet, then they get to another galaxy. When does it ever end? It doesn't ever end. And that's not a bad thing. When people are always saying, oh, when does it ever end? I just want it to get easier. I think they're in the wrong business model. If you're in the right business model, why do you want it to end? Why would you? Here's one of our most popular, Jordan Peterson. It's really, really hard to be a good salesperson. I hear Jordan Peterson a lot say, it's really, really hard to be. And um, we've got another discussion lined up, and I'm going to challenge him on this, that it's not hard, it's new. Anything that's new is hard because you haven't done it before and you haven't got the neural pathways and the habits and the experience and the knowledge and the confidence. But once you have, it's not hard anymore, it's easy. You know, look at the effortlessness of maybe the way um, Serena Williams hits a tennis ball or Rory McIlroy hits a golf ball, for example, or the way Lewis Hamilton drives a Formula One racing car uh, because they've practiced it. And what was new is now not new. And so what was hard is now easy or easier or a habit. And the reason I'm saying this, some could say, well, Rob, that's just semantics. And at the end of the day, things are hard. But if you tell yourself that things are hard, you almost stop yourself from doing it. And you almost write yourself off as someone who's not able before you've even given it a chance. So when I'm mentoring people and people say to me, it's hard, I just say, no, it's not. It's just new because what's hard for you 
is easy for someone else. And then I get them to look at what's easy for them. I ask them, what do they do well that others find hard? And they find something, whether it's public speaking or bench pressing or yoga. The things that they find easy, they've ticked all the boxes of experience and habit and routine and consistency and constant and never ending improvement. It's really, really hard to be a good salesperson. And people like that are unbelievably rare and they're unbelievably valuable. And nothing wrong with it and it doesn't make you a bad person Mm. and you're not selling your soul. It's nice to hear people talking about salespeople as rare and valuable instead of evil and dirty and pushy. Um, And usually you would sell how you buy. So anyone who has a perception of salespeople being filthy and um, hard, I would check your own perception of how you buy, because that's not a reflection of who they are. It's probably a reflection of how you perceive them to be. But, but I saw Mark Cuban recently say that sales cures all. And I really believe that. If you've got a, a venture, an enterprise, a business, sales cures everything. Lack of resources, sales cures it. Lack of recruitment, sales cures it. Lack of um, revenue, sales cures it. Uh, people want pay rises, Sales cures it. You want to innovate? Sales cures it. You want to buy a new office, new equipment? Sales cures it. So this is why so many people have said that the interview I did with Jordan Peterson is the best interview they've ever seen with Jordan Peterson. This is the reason why. How are, how are you going to generate revenue? Yeah. And without that, how's economy how are you going, going to money even well, going to move in an see, economy? The, well, and the other thing that happens with the artistic and maybe the entrepreneurial types too is that they they end up with contempt for the business end of the process. And that's a real mistake, you know. And one of the things that I tell people who are artistically oriented, let's say, so they're in the entrepreneurial category is, look, it's virtually impossible for you to monetize your product. That's the first thing you have to understand. Anyone creative or artistic or anti-capitalist, if you cannot monetize your work, you cannot do more of your work. And if only to be able to do more of your work, you should make money. And I have heard some very creative, very wealthy people say that often the reason they want to make more money is to do better art and do more work. And innovation and research and development all come from profit. And without profit, you know, if you're in a band and you make no money, you can't buy nice guitars. We've got Ben behind the camera there. If we make no money from our brand, he's got to use shitty equipment. You know, he'd like some nice lights, I'm sure. I'm sure he'd not like a 10 grand camera. I'm sure he'd like a yeah, more, more expensive backdrop. So do not make the mistake of being too anti-capitalism. I saw a brilliant meme from Patrick Bet David, which said that hard times create capitalists. Capitalists create good times. Good times create socialists. Socialists create hard times. And I found that interesting. So maybe you'll get lucky and you'll figure out a a strategy. But if you add contempt for the sales and marketing process to that impossibility, you can be bloody well sure that all you're going to do is starve. Mm. So so you better drop your contempt for the sales and marketing end of this if you you want to sustain yourself through your life. And that's going to be a prerequisite for your creative endeavor. Yeah. And so, and art schools and, and, and establishments like that do an absolutely dreadful job. There is no honour in starving for your art, none whatsoever. There is no legacy in starving for your art. And the point about the schools and the system not teaching sales and marketing, oh my big God, 
Like I could go on a massive rant here. I did architecture and my tutors were not practicing architects. So I was being taught theory when I was supposed to be moving into the world of practice. That's like someone who's learned to be a doctor on the internet and has never done a procedure and has got a knife and is about to cut me open. No fucking way. But that's how the school system is set up. Uh, when I created designs in architecture, we had to present our work to our tutors and our fellow colleagues. We were never taught public speaking. We were never taught pitching. We were never taught selling. We were never taught marketing. If you want to build an architect's practice or be an architect, surely part of it is gaining clients. If you can't gain clients, there is no money. And if there is no money, there is no career. So focus on sales and marketing. Don't see it as selling out, see it as selling in. Well, they don't teach it. No, I, I was an artist. All. I was an artist. I went through art school. Yeah. They don't teach it. No. Never once. No, I know, I know. And it's, it's and I mean, how I, are you going to commercialize your venture? How are you going to pay for your mortgage? Mm -hmm. What just. How are you going to buy food? Yeah, with a, just like, a paintbrush and a canvas. Oh, Jesus. And, it, and well, and artists are in particularly dire position because as a, a visual artist, for example, you're not only competing with all the visual artists that now exist, and there's plenty of them. But you're also competing with all the dead artists who were way, who, who already have an established reputation mm. and a body of work that's that's being, what what still being exchanged in the marketplace. Yeah. And so you don't want to add contempt for the sales and marketing process no. to that. And you also probably have to understand that if you want to be an artist, that you're also going to have to have have to have another job. Yeah. Here's the irony: a lot of artists will get a second job to fund the art but they won't embrace sales and marketing to sell more art, so they don't need a second job. Here's an extract with the lovely, beautiful Katie Piper. You are so defined by that story. Well, am I? I mean, that's okay, the thing. Yeah, that, yeah. That's a question, not a statement. What happened to me was a very small snapshot. You know, I think of, my, of a life like a movie, and that was a very small scene in that movie, and it, and it doesn't define me at all. You know, it's very much my past, and the past doesn't really exist anymore, mm. you know? So I suppose in, you know, lazy journalism, if you were writing an article about me, it'd be really easy to say, um, acid attack girl, which kind of sounds like a superhero with pants over there. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it? Um, which sounds kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, in a way, yeah. Or, or acid attack victim, which is somebody that would be dead because yeah. if you're a victim, you didn't survive something, you yeah. know? So, yeah, it's, it's just something that happened to me in my 20s. And I've done so many more things and I'm so many more different things to different people now yeah. than just, you know, someone that got burnt. Sure. You know? The reason we wanted to include this extract from the Katie Piper interview is because if anyone's experiencing challenge or hardship, you're anxious, you're depressed, you're seeing life as hard and everything in the way, not on the way, listening and watching that one minute and 15 piece from Katie, who basically says she's not defined by the fact that someone threw acid all over her and gave her extremely hard health problems and extreme pain for nearly two decades. Yet she's saying that doesn't own me, that doesn't define me, that's not who I am, that's just a part of my story. That to me is really inspiring. To be able to move on from something that other people are trying to define you as and just see it as a clip in a long movie. And I think people, what they do is they carry the pain and the baggage from their past into their present, which changes their future. Instead of just seeing everything in their past as on the way, not in the way, and as a journey and as a gift 
to give you more tools to live a better life. I'm always inspired. She's my friend, Katie, and I'm always inspired by her. And that's why we wanted to put this excerpt in. And I think that entrepreneurs are often justified by their work. I know I can get into that mode where, you know, who is Rob Moore? Oh, he's the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. He's got 1,200 um, property rental units in his three companies. He's written 18 books. He's broken two world records. You know, yada, yada, yada. No, 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 no. Who's Rob? Not entrepreneur, not accolades, not CV. Who's Rob? I find that a lot harder. And you don't have to be defined. If you're defined by what you do, when you fail, you feel like a failure. You are not a failure. You just failed once. So don't be defined by your pain and don't be defined by the things that you perceive you failed at. They're just part of a journey and you are much more than just those little moments. Here's the clip with Floyd Mayweather. You know, I told the people that I made nine men in nine minutes, but I think actually I made more money than that. I just tell people what I wanted to tell them. So what, what are your beliefs around money? Well, just because I talk about money, doesn't make me a bad person. Just because I talk about money doesn't make me a bad person. There must be a third of the planet that don't agree with that. And if they just took that statement and really thought about it, their world would change. Do you know there are good people who make money and good people who don't make money and bad people who make money and bad people who don't make money? You can be rich and happy or rich and unhappy. You can be poor and happy or poor and unhappy. What do I mean by those eight statements? Money and happiness or who you are as a person are completely unrelated. You separate those concepts, you'll make a lot more money. And if you don't listen to me, listen to Floyd Mayweather. I mean, I, love, I like to have to find the things in life. Money don't make me, I make money. That is my favorite quote of all time. Money don't make me, I make my money. Let me say that again. Money don't make me, I make my money. I love that. I love that. We should just end life now. I could die and go to heaven on that moment. Ah. I like to feed my family. You know, um, we, can't feed, we can't feed our family just saying I love you. <laughs> we can't feed our family just saying I love you. Yeah, you can't take love to the bank. You can't withdraw love from the cash machine. And here's the one and only Mr. David Icke. You, you were going to ask, why is it yeah. happening? Well, it's happening because um, I've been talking for 30 years and writing for 30 years. There are very few people control the world. Very few people. People would be staggered how few. How many? Um, well, I'm going to come to that okay, in sorry. terms of it's fewer <laughs> now than ever before. And why? But people have, a lot of people have said in response to that, a few people can't control the world. There's too many people. It's not possible. Well, now we have a handful of people, which you could probably get on 10 fingers or uh, uh, two hands, yeah, um, that control Google, control um, YouTube, owned by Google, control Facebook, that absolutely dominate the information that most people see or don't see. We, we have a concentration of power in Silicon Valley, a very small area of the world, that is the greatest concentration of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen. They can decide what you see and what you don't see, and they control your data in other words, the intelligence, military intelligence community can. 
to find out the fine detail of your life from the information that you've posted on these various uh, platforms. So that's where we're, what we're facing in terms of freedom of speech. It's disappearing. In fact, it doesn't exist. There is no freedom of speech. By the definition of freedom of speech is the freedom to speak w your opinion mm. and not have it censored and not have it banned. So this happened to you, didn't it, at one of your talks where they tried to close it down? Well, they, they, they always try to close my talks down. So in this particular extract we've pulled out from the interview with David Icke, I don't actually want to comment on this. I'd like your thoughts because I think we do need to get this dialogue going. It does seem to be more of a cancel culture now. It does seem to be more of a censorship. Some of the big social media platforms do seem to have a lot more power. There's scandals such as Cambridge Analytica scandals. Are we being tracked and monitored? Do we actually have free speech? Are we being cancelled and censored? So if you're watching on the YouTube channel, please put your comments and your thoughts in the comments below. And if you're listening on the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast, please come and join the Disruptive Entrepreneur community on Facebook um, and come and share your thoughts there on what you think David Icke thinks about freedom of speech and censorship and if they're watching us. I would like your thoughts. Here's some content from the very controversial Katie Hopkins. I was asked to speak when I was a radio person. Uh, there's a big radio conference and it was, uh, the, was it BBC? BBC organised it and I was asked to be the keynote, unheard of, and it was called Disruption. Mm. So that's why I was asked to be the keynote. Right. And of course, even to be in the building is madness for me because they hate me. Mm. But this one particular lady sort of got what I did. And so Disruption for me is about not being satisfied with going along with everything because it's easier. It's always easier to swim downstream. And of course, if you're one of the fish that wants to swim downstream because that's what you think, sure, go, go, go. It's always going to be harder to swim upstream, but it's totally worth the effort. So I believe, and I tell my kids every day, all the best people are mad. All the best people are weird. And the more weird and the mad you are, and the, the more alone you find yourself, I believe you're probably heading in the right direction. And if you feel really alone and you need someone who's known for being a cad to back you up, then do always email me and I'll always be there. Mm. But yeah, swim upstream and you'll be all right. So I had a conversation with Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari, Steve Jobs' first mentor. In fact, Nolan Bushnell got offered $50,000 for half of Apple. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... I, I was surprised how well he took that and he said embrace weirdness he had someone who came and worked for him who wore a dress a man who wore a dress to work all the time wanted to wear a dress and this person was somewhat not accepted in other places and Nolan Bushnell re really accepted his weirdness and and Katie is saying here you know love her or loathe her the reason I interviewed her is because she is disruptive and I think you should always judge people based on your own experience not what you see in the media but She's saying that, you know, the weirdness, the uniqueness, the differences, these are what make you disruptive. These are what make you memorable. These are what make you you. And don't be shy and don't be embarrassed and don't hold back on those quirks and isms and the things that people don't get because, you know, what they hate about you is also great about you. So here's the clip with David Goggins. And is that why you're, you've talked a lot 
in this podcast about getting rid of noise, mm-hmm. quiet, alone. Is, is that part of that equation? It's, it's all a part of it. Yeah. Because I realized once I was talking to myself the right way and all this shit wasn't in my mind, wow, I went from this piece of shit kid who thought he was dumb, not successful, insecure, who stuttered when I first saw somebody to a person who can now do all these things just because I now control my own mind. Mm. And I don't care. A lot of people say they don't care. But they do. They care like my my, my My son says, I don't care. And every time he says, it, I, I don't care, it means he cares. It means he cares. Yeah. When you get to the point where you really fucking don't care. You don't have to say You're it. dangerous. <laughs> so first thing, David Goggins was one of our most popular interviews. People love him. They're super fans of him. I think he cares. I'm just going to say it. He says he doesn't fucking care. Everyone who I've heard say that does. And I think he does because I think he's hurt. And I think he admitted it in the interview. So I'm not stepping out of line because you don't want to fuck with him. But his book is called You Can't Hurt Me or Can't Hurt Me Because He's Hurt. Voids create values. Fulfillment is trying to fill what is unfilled. So I think he does care. And I think he's hurt. And I think he's using that hurt to drive him relentlessly towards the pursuit of a meaningful mission. And I think that's common in very successful people. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, I will add, it is totally liberating. Like David says, If you don't fucking care what anyone thinks about you, you are dangerous. It is absolutely liberating beyond belief. The only true definition of freedom is having the courage to be disliked by anyone and be yourself in that process. If you can unapologetically be yourself with true congruence and authenticity and integrity and belief and volition, knowing that you're valuable and useful doing meaningful work and accepting criticism, troll, hating, resistance along the way, accepting is part of the journey, not trying to avoid it, but facing it head on. That is freedom. That is ultimate freedom. Try it. Your life will change. I'm not saying don't care like, I don't care if I do that. No, when you don't care about other people and how they view you, Mm. about how you walk, how you talk, how you dress, where you want to go with your life, you know, growing up, I didn't want to tell anybody I wanted to be in the military. Because why? Some of my black friends, I was afraid of what they think. Mm. I was afraid of what other people thought about me. So now, when I go in the military, I know you want to fucking join the military. Yeah, I ain't tell you because I'm afraid of what you thought. Once again, man, you're allowing other people to shackle your mind. Mm. It's, the, it's, the, it's the worst thing in the world. Do you think you could go the other way and maybe become a bit cold if you don't care what anyone thinks? Your fiance, your kids, you know, they're not the people around. Do you not care what they think? See, that's the thing about it. You have to have an understanding of what not caring means. If your fiance and your kids don't believe in you, you can't care what they think. That means you chose the wrong support staff. I'm not sure how you can choose your kids. <laughs> uh, my kids don't believe in me. Wrong support staff, fire them next. <laughs> so that's why a lot of people don't understand one another. Your support staff has to be like, if I want to go out and do... Whatever it is, my support staff is, you know, my fiance. If she's like, you know what, you know, I don't think that you should be doing that. I have to take it, you know, 
why? So I can be open-minded. So, so, so why are you saying this? But if she's saying it because of her, you know, that's not, that's not the right thing. Because I need backing to do what I'm going to do. Mm. Open-mindedness. I need support. I hear David on this, but I'm going to challenge this. I agree in the pursuit of your meaningful mission, you need supportive people along the way who buy into that and let you be yourself. But equally, you need challenge because some of the things you're going to do are going to cause destruction and chaos and aren't right for you. And if you surround yourself with supportive people and not challenging people, you'll end up becoming complacent, cocky, arrogant, overly bullish. So I think you need equal support and challenge. People will call you out on your shit. Number one. Number two is, that's one-sided. To say that you need people around you who support you is almost saying that you're not prepared to support others around you. But fiancé isn't put on this planet just to support you. You're also put on this planet to support your fiancé. And I see this a lot in business when people have got a bit of knowledge and education. These people don't support me. These people don't serve me. Fuck off, you're holding me back. But what about you supporting them? Because it's an equal thing. A partnership and a relationship has to be equally selfish and selfless, serving of others and supporting their needs as well as getting yours supported. I'm challenging and being challenged. And people don't talk about that enough. Not even David Goggins, motherfucker. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Grant Cardone. The only people that think a million dollars is a lot of money is people that don't have it. Grant's full of great sound bites. The only people that think that a million dollars is a lot of money is the people that don't have it. A million dollars is what, seven, eight hundred thousand pounds? That's not, you're not gonna retire on that. You need at least 10 million pounds to have a good lifelong funded retirement, at least. The only people that think you can live on a million pounds are the people that don't have a million pounds. Yeah. So now, what's the difference between that and a hundred? Everything. Yeah. Like, another one. What's the difference between a million pounds and a hundred million pounds? Everything. What's your attitude to fear and risk? Uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta take risk. The, the, the best way to stay out of harm's way is to be the most dangerous person in the room. Another soundbite there. The best way to stay out of harm's way is be the most dangerous person in the room. I'm just repeating his quotes. I'm not adding any value in this part. Do you ever though, sometimes think, man, I'm taking too big a risk here. Every, every, every deal I do. Yeah. Every deal I do. I like Grant's attitude to risk. I do think people look at 10X, his movement and don't know the process of going from 1x to 10x and i think they do get a bit high on you know go big or go home go all in you don't have to go big or go home this in between um and you can go quite big and not quite go home and you can also go 3x or 5x not 10x but um he says he's always fearing when he's doing deals which means his deals are pushing him forward uh, and i think that's an exciting way to live life so thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being a loyal supporter of The Disruptive Entrepreneur. I hope you've enjoyed the 700 episodes and let's look forward to 19,422 more. Because remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. <laughs>